On today's episode, John and Dave are talking about how we first got into 8-bit computers and gaming. Basically, our origin stories, if you will. So let's get into it. The 8-bit files with Dave and John. One of the interesting things about us talking about setting up this podcast originally was the fact that we both have, you know, well, at least to us, interesting origin stories about how we got into into our 8-bit computer uh, obsessions, if you will. And for me, I think it goes back even further than 8-bit computers because uh, we're of an age, like a lot of people, uh, where we didn't have computers our entire life. They they came into our lives at a certain point. And for me, the first computer I ever saw was an Apple II Plus in my high school when I was living in Northern BC. And for some reason, our school district had a lot of money and we had one of the first Apple II computers in, as far as I could tell, the province. I, I don't have any hard data about that as to who got what first, but from what I understand, it was a very big deal that we got these computers. And that was my first like, you know, sparkle in the eye. Like this is going to be something huge that I need to spend a lot of time on. Um, so would that computer have been, would that computer have been on a trolley or would they wheel it from classroom to classroom or how, how was that shared in the school? Was it just one machine? Uh, it was one machine. And, and, uh, at the time, I think I was like in the senior class and we had like a main classroom and then the classroom, there was a small little, like, now you'd call it like a little meeting room uh, beside our classroom. And that's where they had it set up. And there was enough chairs for, I think, four or five people to sort of like be over your shoulder while you're doing stuff. And we used to play things like Lemonade Stand and Dung Beetles and things like that on it. And it was just magical. The I guess the <laughs> one of the things that I was able to convince my teacher is like, I need to spend more time with this computer. I need to get out of class and be in this room undisturbed. And for whatever reason, they believed me. And I got to spend a majority of my class time playing around, learning the Apple computer system. And then um, uh, the idea was that I would learn it and then I would teach my classmates how to do it. And so it just became this excuse to play games on the Apple computer. <laughs> so, so a nerd from the beginning, of course. Yeah. Uh, that would have been, you would have been in about grade, I'm going to guess grade six-ish maybe. Was it around there roughly? Yeah. Yeah. Six or seven, somewhere in there. Um, yeah. It, Cause it was, you know, the very beginning of what we'd call personal computers. Yes. And um, uh, at, around the same time though, my grandfather had a TRS-80 model three computer for whatever reason, he thought it would be good to give it to me. Cause I think he got something better. Right. And again, this is back when computers like this cost thousands of dollars. And um, they weren't just handed out like like smartphones are now. Mm -hmm. um, although I guess relatively pricing wise, it's kind of not that different. But um, but yeah, so that was the first computer I had at my house, and I was still living in Northern BC when this happened, and it was such a big deal because nobody else in my little town, I think there was like fifteen hundred people for like a five mile radius. Yes, nobody had ever seen a computer in someone's house. Right. So I literally charged my friends 25 cents to see it. <laughs> 50 cents if they wanted to touch it. I love the entrepreneurial spirit there. Yeah. Yeah. So what did your your grandpa, oh, he, this was his machine, right? The TRS-80. Yeah. So what yeah. did he use it for? What did he, do you, do you remember what his his use cases would have been? Um, if, well, he, he ultimately he, he was an artist. He was also a professor uh, in Ontario as well at, at university level. And he... Later in his life, he got really into computer-generated graphics for art. So he would he would have computer-generating stuff, and then he would um, get it printed out and things like that. I don't I don't even know how back then he would have done that because it's not like you can just go to Kinkos or something, uh, or you can just get an Epson inkjet printer, you know that kind of thing. Yes. He did something, and it was you know I still have some of his art uh, in frames uh, in my house. Um, but he was just, he was, he was like me. I, and I think this is where I get it from is just, just really curious about technology. And he was, he, he, I don't always need to have a, a use case to get something that I'm interested in. Like I have a lot of tech, as you know, mm -hmm. that, um, 
doesn't need to be in my possession, but for some reason at some point in time, I thought it needed to be in my possession. So, um, but yeah, so um, that was for me was really kind of the the dawning of my interest in computers and technology as a whole. Um, My, one of my claim to fames in that era was the fact that there was a computer magazine in Canada, I think it was called Byte Canada or Byte Computer. Um, I think it was Byte Canada because it was like a Canadian subset of a bigger magazine from the US. And I, you know, back then you had like a cassette tape to record stuff. Mm-hmm. You didn't have floppies or anything like that yet. And so what everyone would do is they would type in literally lines of code in basic typically uh, out of a magazine and i found some code somewhere i forget how i came upon it i didn't write it from scratch but i basically repurposed it and i changed it into basically a really basic version of space invaders for the trs-80 model 3 and they published it in that magazine and i i think i forget what they sent me i think i got ten dollars or something Mm -hmm. like it was a very minor thing but it was a big deal when you're in like grade seven or six or whatever it was so absolutely i I, look, I i believe elon musk uh one of his claims to fame well as far as commodore we'll talk about commodore computers in this podcast as well but one of his claims to fame was having a game published uh in uh one of those old 8-bit computer magazines in basic i i saw an article about that recently so there you go you you and he had something in common even back then <laughs> He can probably find that magazine. I I haven't been able to find it. I don't think it exists digitally, and I've long, long lost the paper copy of it. Um, but how did you, what was your first uh, uh, brush with computers? Well, it's funny enough, it, it's it's sitting down and thinking about this podcast that triggered the memory of, of that. For me, I was sitting in, it was actually strange, but my kindergarten teacher's living room in Victoria, BC. I didn't, she moved away and my, my mom was friends with her. So we, we visited them in Victoria and her husband had strictly speaking, it, I, I don't know what it was. I don't know if, if it was a, like an, an eight bit microcomputer specifically, I think it may have actually been a telex machine okay. where, where you've got thermal paper and you're, it's basically like a, a primitive online terminal almost but you're just sending static text uh on on paper basically so think of it i guess as a you know a uh a weird precursor to the fax machine exactly that's right Uh, exactly but pretty darn cool at the time and i remember basically it was explained to me i mean i was probably six years old it was explained to me that it was a computer and it really was i guess in its own right and i guess her husband was in the in the industry and and i remember like it's funny i don't remember anything of course don't remember much else from when i was six years old but i just just distinctly remember just being so curious about computers and so that was that was the intro and i i didn't actually get a computer for several years uh, but uh, in, in between uh, that time it was probably thinking about computers and electronics and, and whatnot and and getting really interested in handheld games the old metal led handheld games that sort of satisfied the technology itch i guess in between first discovering computers and and actually mm-hmm. getting one and i still have the original uh metal football game that i had in i guess it was about 1978 i guess or 79 i still have that in my possession it still works and and that's pretty exciting so fast forward i guess uh to, to about 1983 and I convinced my parents that uh, that I wanted a VIC-20, a Commodore VIC-20 computer, which is a very popular microcomputer of the day, very affordable computer of the day. But by about 1983, the VIC-20 was was a little bit long in the tooth. It had been around out for a few years and the Commodore 64 had, had been released uh, around that time. So it was actually the Bay of all stores, the Bay, the Hudson <laughs> Bay Company, a, a large, well-known department store in Canada. They were a, a pretty major distributor of the Commodore computers. I remember they had a kiosk like with, with, a, with a whole uh, uh, cabinets with software and, and whatnot. So 
I would have taken my parents to the store. Uh, this was around the time of my birthday in 1983. And I wanted a VIC-20, but they actually ended up buying the newer, much more expensive and more capable Commodore 64. So in, in today's money, uh, they probably spent about a thousand bucks, I'm going to say, back in 1983 on that machine. And in today's money, I think that's about 3,000 bucks. So that's a, that's, that was a fair chunk of change for them to put out. But I'm sure glad that they picked up the 64 uh, then, rather than the VIC-20. It, it was a good decision on their part, I think. It's always interesting when you look back at the ads at the time and how they were selling these computers. And they always had like some kind of really like really that's that's how you're selling this like you can do spreadsheets you can do this things like like terms that most people probably didn't even know what they were right and and yet your parents made the decision to buy the more expensive machine for you because they were like were they investing in your future did they realize it was something to do that or was it literally like an atari 2600 where you were just going to play games all day like for me, it was always interesting, these original computers, they were kind of marketed for gaming purposes, but I was never really that great at games or or I, I lacked the attention span to play them all the way through. Um, I just wanted more of them. That's all I knew. But I liked the applications. I liked all the different things for them. So it was always interesting to see. And I've come across some really bad videos of the commercials that they had for these computers back in the day. And I can't believe anyone actually bought them based on these commercials. <laughs> well, the, the Commodore 64 commercial, I adore my 64. That was yeah. a very, uh, very, that, that jingle was, was catchy even back then, but, kind yeah. of, but, but quite a cheesy, quite a cheesy commercial. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did, did my parents know what I was going to use the computer for? I, I, I think I wanted an Atari really like, Prior mm -hmm. to getting the Commodore 64, I wanted an Atari 2600, like like everybody uh, uh, had pr pr pretty much. But, so you didn't have you didn't have one before that. Your first like device in your house that was not you know a blender was that's that's right. Was the 64? Was the 64? Wow. That's right. Nothing other than you know as those handheld games and yeah. and no absolutely no uh, yeah no Atari. I, I don't know if my parents didn't want me to have one because they didn't want me playing games all day or yeah. if it was it was probably a cost thing but but of course we all had a lot of friends who had Atari 2600 so we that actually give us an excuse to go over to their their homes and, and basically play their their, well, their that, that, that's something i missed from that era was the fact that like i lived in northern bc and you know it was a very small town and the only way to get stuff like this was through mail order through the sears catalog and Again, I remember my parents bought me an Atari 26, or bought the family, I should say, um, a 2600 from the Sears catalog one year. I think the same year that kind of everybody's parents did it for their kids. Like, I swear they had a meeting because <laughs> everyone had it. And then they would decide, okay, well, well John's going to get this game. Dave's mm -hmm. going to get that game. And then they're going to trade or visit each other. And, you know, there's only one copy of the game going around the town. That's right. Right. And but it worked out really well because we would go to people's houses with like six or seven people and we'd all have our own cartridges yes. to play. And it's kind of like, well, look at the cool game I just got. Right on. And those games were not inexpensive in those days. I, I think I remember, no. say, just Pac-Man for the Atari, seeing it in the store at I think $79 in the day, which would be hundreds, a couple of hundred bucks today. Well, which is Yeah. And basically the pricing of console cartridges hasn't really changed that much mm -hmm. you know you get an xbox or a nintendo switch cart or or d disc or whatever now you're still looking between you know 60 70 80 90 dollars in some cases um so the price has been pretty consistent for decades yes um, no that's kind of funny actually i didn't hadn't thought of it that way yeah you're totally right yeah totally right. um looping back to your commodore 64 experience because i think it was maybe a year or two prior to yours was the first time I truly got a computer that I obsessed over and wanted. And that was the Atari uh, 800XL. And at the time, again, the only place that we could get them would be um, Sears. But we had moved to Ontario at the time and uh, it was coming up on Christmas or my birthday. I couldn't remember which, which I think it was Christmas. Yeah. And I told my mom for like months, I want this specific computer 
I didn't want the 600 XL because it was a lesser computer, had less memory. Uh, it didn't look as cool. And um, I knew I was going to want the maximum I could get. I can't even remember how much it cost back then, but it was probably a lot of money for my parents. Yes, and yes. my mom was really good at yanking my chain. And she basically had told me, well, we can't afford that computer for you. So we're going to get you something else. And I was expecting a VIC-20 mm-hmm. <laughs> because at the time, that was the cheaper, cheapest option out yes. there. And I was not, I mean, I would have been fine with anything, mm-hmm. but it's funny how your parents, you know, financial decisions can dictate your future uh, in some respect to some of these things. Because um, quite often you kind of hope that you get something that your friends have. So at least you have something compatible to talk about or exchange the software and gaming and things like that with. But I was so convinced that my mom didn't buy what I wanted, mm-hmm. but I knew where she hid the Christmas presents that were already wrapped. <laughs> and one day they were all out of the house and I was home alone and I unwrapped my present and I didn't unwrap the whole thing. I only unwrapped enough of a corner to, to confirm that she actually had in fact got me the 800 XL. Yes. So, you oh know, and I, I had to pretend to be super excited about it uh, on Christmas day. <laughs> yep. But the reality was I was, you know, jumping around the house for the rest of that day, excited about it. And I was tempted to like, what's the worst could happen if I open it and start using it right now? What, what's the worst that can happen? And this is probably a few weeks before Christmas too. So, you know, and that was probably, you know, the one Christmas present I was going to get because it was so much money at the time. Yes. Yes. So how long, how uh, long before Christmas was it that you discovered that you had to wait? So how many days did you have to wait? Oh, it was probably a few weeks. Yeah. Um, at least it was probably sometime in December that I actually had discovered it and, uh, or, or she at least had it all wrapped in, tucked away because again back then you would order stuff uh through Mm -hmm. sears and that seems like at that time everything was run through the sears catalog and i remember i literally got a sears catalog just to obsess over the atari page Mm -hmm. back in the day and you'd study that for 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 months prior to to christmas or the holidays and every by the time christmas came around you'd have certain pages of that catalog just memorized right you'd know yeah everything, uh, every detail. Like, those are, those are beautiful memories. I have similar memories as well uh, as a kid. And fun, it's funny you mentioned the Christmas gift because, oh, I don't think my dad's ever going to hear this episode so I can say this now. Uh, so I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but I, I graduated, if you will, from the 64, the Commodore 64 in 1983 to the Commodore 128 and I think it was Christmas of 85. So it was really only a couple of years after I first got the 64. And again, I remember looking under my parents' bed where they hid the Christmas presents. And I saw the 128 underneath the bed before. And I, I can't believe I did that now in hindsight. I feel, <laughs> I feel guilty about that. But, but I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the 128 was, mm-hmm. uh, was, a, was an amazing machine. Uh, and it uh, it was such a and it would have been a significant cost uh, upgrade as well in in terms of uh, in terms of the financial layout. I I imagine it was probably in the seven eight hundred dollar range. So that's that's uh, that's good that's good stuff. So with with the Atari computer, did you have did you did you say did you did you immediately have friends that you would be able to collaborate with on that, or would you have been on your own on that in terms of getting started and, and learning the machine? I, I think for the first little while I was on my own because um, I think around the same time that, that I got that was when the Commodore stuff was was coming out. And I, a lot of my friends had the Commodore system, whether it was the VIC-20 or the, or the 64 at the time. And um, But it wasn't long after that, though, that I discovered that there was actually a store in town that mm-hmm. sold them that wasn't Sears. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, this is in Ontario, Kitchener. And um, there was this little little computer store. It was like kind of like almost like a little basement shop. Uh, like you actually had to go downstairs to get into it. Um, and it was just filled to the brim with software. Oh, wow. And, you know, back then you'd get, you know, uh, a, a game on a floppy disk, uh, whether it's a five inch or, a, you know, the three and a half. Um, and it would be come with a book and probably in a Ziploc bag. Right. Um it was around the starting point of when they'd actually put it in a proper box and, you know, 
marketing and packaging was really coming into play. But a lot of the games that I was interested in, or software, I should say, uh, came in a Ziploc bag yes. and um, in this little store. And it was kind of magical because I would literally go there like a couple times a week to see what was new because, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have the internet and there was no other way to know uh, unless you went to the store and yes. talk to them. And they would get shipments in, you know, once or twice a week and they would be excited to show me whatever they had to take my money from me. But then not long after that, there was another store that I liked more because they focused specifically on Atari hardware and software, whereas this other store had a little bit of everything. And so I was less interested in bigger chunks of this other store, but the new store I had was just Atari. And again, it boggles my mind that back in the those days that some people thought they could actually make a living having a store doing nothing but selling Atari stuff. Hmm. Um, it boggles my mind. But of course, I really wanted something there. And I realized I was really good at convincing other people to get an Atari because hmm. I would show them what I was doing with mine. And I guess I convinced the owners that hmm. they should give me a job there after school. You know, I was in high school at the time and uh, I think grade eight or grade, grade, probably grade nine. And um, they let me, and, and this is probably highly illegal, <laughs> they let me work for stuff. So I would come in after school and, you know, for probably a couple hours and literally just hang out and nerd out. But I was technically working because I was convincing anyone that came in the store to buy whatever they wanted to buy. And they would pay me in hardware or software or both. Right. Wow. What a, so you've been an influencer since, <laughs> since back then. I mean, if there's, if there's one word I would use to describe you, John, it's that you're an influencer. And I mean that in a, an extremely complimentary way, uh, <laughs> your enthusiasm for whether it's old tech or new tech is always uh, so contagious and you're, you're so good at explaining things to people and, 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 and a great salesman. <laughs> and, and again, in a, in a positive way, you've influenced, I know a lot of my purchasing decisions yeah. and interests, whether you tried to or not, uh, over the years, like tr tremendously. I, I think it, I think it's to make me feel better about my purchase is to yeah. have more people. <laughs> of course. To buy of it course. Of like, course. Well, Dave thinks it's worth it, worth buying it. So it must be worth it for me right. to keep it. I totally get it. You, you, yeah. You, you, yeah, I totally get it. So do you remember what some of the early title software titles would have been that you would have acquired for the Atari computer? Um, one of the sort of, um, foundational game. Well, there's a couple. Anything back in those days from Electronic Arts was or Broderbund software was pretty magical. Yes. Uh, I remember doing like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure. Um, I remember doing uh, um, a few different variations on that theme because, you know, these were very rudimentary computers as far as graphics and stuff like that goes. I mean, they were a step up from the 2600, but they weren't that big of a step. Um, but the one game that I remember really enjoying the most that I paid for with my own money is something called Caverns of Kafka. And to this day, it's usually one of the first games I try when I try a new Atari emulator for the first time on a new device, because it kind of, it's a platforming kind of game. It has all of the sort of hallmarks of an Atari game. It's got like the, the rolling rainbow, uh, um, visual graphics. It's got a lot of the sounds they're, they're all, you know, the same sounds in a lot of the same games, right? Like they didn't have a lot of variety of, uh, musical capabilities, but, uh, it's just a visually really interesting game and it's a really easy game to pick up and play. And, you know, you can play it on, on anything. Um, so I, that's one of my favorites is Caverns of Kafka, I think. Um, I don't nice. know if it made it for other platforms or not, right. um, but I think it was just some guy wrote it himself and sold it. And it was probably one of those floppy disks yes. in a, a Ziploc bag. I was that just going to ask, was it one yeah. of the Ziploc bag games? Well, it's funny, you just it, reminded me of back in uh, 83. So I got my Commodore 64 in 83. I had a cassette drive. I know you had the cassette drive with your TRS-80. I'm not sure if you had, it was a cassette drive with your Atari or not. Or no, it was floppies, of course. You've already said floppy drive for uh, Atari. Yeah, yeah. I think that was one of the first pieces of hardware I got when I worked at that little store was a floppy drive. Right. Because everything, because that's the that was the nice thing is back then, 
both the Commodore and the Atari had cartridge slots. So yes. you could get games and plug them into the back and you didn't have to load. They were just, they were like yes. a game console. And, um, but the advent of floppy drives and, and uh, cassette recorders and all that type of stuff really made it so you could actually program your own stuff and save it. And then I, I guess back in the day, we always had dreams of like, Oh, someday they'll turn my game into a cartridge. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Then you've made it. Then you've made it. So I remember in yeah 80 summer of 83 i'd only had the 64 for maybe a month or two and i made a trip to to the big city which would have been vancouver area i lived in northern bc as well at the time uh, not uh, a little bit further away from uh, quite a ways away from vancouver i should say and i remember going to a computer store downtown i believe it was in the broadway area of vancouver if anybody's familiar with the area very busy part of the city and and the same thing, I remember seeing software on the wall, like on hanging on pegs, like in like mm -hmm. either plastic bags or, or even maybe basic, very, very basic rudimentary packaging. And the game that I convinced my mom to let me buy was a cassette. Of course, it would have had to have been on cassette, uh, was a game called Froggy. Think Frogger, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. You, can, you can already imagine what it is. It's a Frogger clone. Everybody's, I'm sure many people are familiar with Frogger very, very popular game in, in its day. And I, I still go back to Froggy. I still like Froggy better than the Commodore 64 port of Frogger. Right. And it's, I can still hear the sounds and I played that game over. I mean, it was the, the only arcade quality game that I had at that time as the 64 was so new to me. It wasn't easy to acquire software again, small town. We didn't have a computer store, but I, I got my mom to, I got my mom. My mom was kind enough to buy me a joystick and a froggy <laughs> game. And, yeah. and boy, oh boy, what a score that was. I, I could hardly wait to get that home. I imagine I would just be thinking about this froggy game and reading the package over and over again, just being super excited to get home to play it. And I still play that game. That is one of the games I test and I'll put it on for nostalgia, but, but believe, believe you me, it's, it's one of the best Frogger clones out there for the Commodore 64 still. And it's one of the originals. So maybe I'll show it to you one day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm probably sure. I'm pretty sure I probably played it. Um, but on that note, I was curious, you got the Commodore 64 and the 128. I had the Atari. Was there anything that the Atari had that you didn't have access to on your Commodore and vice versa? For me, I remember being incredibly jealous of the Commodore clan having access to something like Impossible Mission. I thought that was an amazing looking and sounding game that I was really disappointed they didn't have a port available for the Atari. Um, I think eventually they did, but it wasn't right. quite as compelling at that point in time. Um because I think it was also one of the first games to use voice synthesis, if I recall. Mm -hmm. It was indeed another yeah. visitor. Yeah, Damn exactly. Wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was really an amazing game, uh, I have to say. The thing, the thing that I'll say, looking back that to that time, we really like we didn't know we were kids. We didn't. I mean, I'm speaking about myself and my friends. We didn't know enough about the technology to really know what the limitations of these computers were. We didn't know if actually maybe the better way to put it is we believed really that these computers could do anything like we didn't realize they even had limitations at least in my mind the the possibilities were endless it wasn't about the maximum amount of ram or cpu speed like we didn't really care or think about those things what what i remember witnessing is the games in particular just seemed to get better and better right uh, like, yeah. like over time and like Impossible Mission is a perfect example of a game that was actually mind blowing at the time. And with the speech synthesis, the smooth animation and, and whatnot. And I remember I had a friend who had an Atari 400, okay, uh, oh, so, wow. which okay. is which is the chiclet or what would you, a membrane keyboard. Is it was a membrane keyboard, that? yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I remember it was almost like a competition thing where, cause his dad was like my dad's boss at work, which oh. is crazy. Right. And we'd go over to their house. Like, cause we were socially friends with them. We'd go over to their house. Like I was, you know, very grade six, you know, 12, 13 years old or whatever. And, and I remember him, this, this friend of ours trying to convince me that the Atari 400 was better than the Commodore 64. And 
showing me the cartridge slot and you know those types of things that uh, that you talked about the atari was sort of known for and, and i remember having a little bit of jealousy at that time it was in the early days for the 64 but uh so i i always thought of the atari i always i always associated the atari 8-bit computers with the atari 2600 in in my mind in the sense that i didn't really know what they could do above and beyond what the atari 2600 could do i i didn't have a lot of hands-on experience with them so you were talking about the aesthetics of the cartridge slots and everything like yes. that um was there anything about the design of the actual system or the console itself that you were jealous of or envious of? Like I, I remember thinking probably poorly at the time that the Atari was the superior, which is why mm -hmm. I chose it because mm -hmm. I thought it, they actually put some industrial design into it. Whereas the Commodore to me seemed a little, you know, uh, functional, but not yep. cool. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Certainly when you, if you were to put the two machines side by side, you'd probably pick the Atari hands down because it definitely yeah. looked cooler. I mean, the 128 and the later Commodore machines, you know, they improved on that, but mm -hmm. there's no doubt about that. The, the Atari look, and and as I said, I associate the the, the Atari 8-bit computers with the Atari 2600 console. In, in my mind, actually, you can answer this question for me. I'm assuming the 800 XL could accept 2600. Was it backwards compatible with 2600 games? Could you? No, no, it, it wasn't. Was, oh. It was only compatible. Well, the 400 was the, the lower end. The 400 was equivalent to the, um, the, the VIC 20, mm. the 800, which had the actual like mechanical key board, mm -hmm. uh, was the equivalent to the Commodore 64. And they were very similar, but for me, I managed to skip that phase and because they had a significant price drop and it was much more affordable with the XL series, mm. the sort of black or I guess beige, gray and white or beige, gray and black. Um, and they just had these really interesting little sort of divots and cutouts on the side that were actually air vents for the, for the machine. Yes. Uh, but the main cartridge itself was only, um, uh, the eight bit cartridges, but it worked on any of the eight bit computers. computers. Got it. Yeah. Got it. But the, um, you know, the, the thing is that a lot of companies made games for both systems. That's right. Um, and so there was a pretty good chance if it was a major company like Electronic Arts or yeah. Broderbund or somebody like that, you could probably get it. And it was always somewhat of a pissing contest as mm -hmm. to which port was better because they would take advantage of the software or the, the, uh, the, the developers would take advantage of the hardware more or, or less so depending on the, you know, the type of game it was or, or that type of thing. And the, um, I, I will say that maybe the Atari was sexier looking, but I think the Commodore had more power under the hood and you could tell in the games because the games looked that much better than the Atari, yes. in my opinion. Yes. Well, I remember for the first year suffering with my cassette deck and having no computer store and having no friends that had a Commodore 64. I was on my own uh, in terms of learning this machine, like you teaching myself basic, right? Like to copying programs from magazines. And, you know, that was really the main source of information. But I remember thinking it was really once the games, like we started to become more, uh, uh, accessible. And once more games were released and we experienced more of the games on this machine that there was, it felt to me like the Commodore 64 was just by far the, 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 the best of the machines in the day. Although I wasn't really basing that on anything other than the fact <laughs> that the games were a lot of fun because we didn't have looking back. I, I didn't, it was a small town. I, I don't even remember other than my Atari 400 friend, knowing anybody who even owned owned a, certainly an Atari 800 definitely didn't know anybody who owned one of yeah. those. And, and what ended up happening is uh, I guess I was kind of an influencer in my own right back then. And I sort of became known amongst my friends as the Commodore kid, uh, the nerdy chubby Commodore kid. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I, I collected software through various means, some of which we won't discuss. Uh, and, and I became the distributor of software amongst my friends as well. We would borrow each other's discs, if you know what I mean. And 
and it really but but the one thing that that definitely spawned was was the purchase of these computers like i'm sure yeah. that the commodore 64 sales which were massive was a massively popular computer as you know it i'm sure that a good number of those machines were sold to people just because the games were easy to quote acquire <laughs> through various yeah. means would you agree yeah totally um the well, back then there wasn't any kind of DRM or anything like that, or it was very, it was a lot later that they started implementing hardware locks or, you know, serial numbers and that kind of stuff for things. Um, but it was interesting at that time though, like you said, you could influence your friends because if you show them a good time on your computer, there's a good yeah. chance if they were looking to get a computer or convince their parents to buy them a computer, That's they'd right. probably want to get the same one because of the fact that they knew, well, John or Dave has the same one and I can get games from him. Exactly. Exactly. It, right. It's almost like part of the sales pitch. Like, well, mom, if you buy this Atari for me, I can get free games from John. So yes. you're not, you, you're <laughs> just going to have to buy it once. Exactly. And I won't bug you yeah. for any, any money for games. Yeah, that's right. And I guess one of the cool things about this is sort of bridging mirror or blurring rather the lines between the Atari and the Commodore is that the Commodore computers accepted Atari joysticks too, which actually made it easier for those kids who had 2600s, which were out of, kind of out of date by that time. The games were feeling dated by around 83, 84, 85. Certainly the Atari was at the end of the 2600 rather was at the end of its life. But mm -hmm. those peripherals, those paddles, those joysticks that, that pretty much everybody had almost, they could plug yep. those right into their Commodore 64 or I guess Atari 8-bit computers if they wanted to, mm -hmm. but, uh, but they were all compatible. And I remember thinking that was actually another selling factor for the 64. All my friends that had Ataris, they would have Atari joysticks, uh, which, was, which was kind of fun. But the other thing that I'll say is one thing that you and I, I think have in common is from that era is sure it was about the games the games were a big deal uh, i was also never really much of a great gamer <laughs> like that's why there's three or four games that i feel i was ever any good at and i probably even wasn't very good at them but but it was about exploring other aspects of the computer as well um, it was about the curiosity it was about uh, it was about non-game software <laughs> you're interested in i was interested in of course telecommunications once we learned about BBSs and what those were, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But it was also just a general fascination with, with programming, making these computers do things. And amongst my friends, if I was to take like a dozen of my friends who might have had these computers uh, at that time, if it was that many, it was probably around that many, not many of them would have delved into the other side of it. It was all about the gaming for most of those kids, basically, where yeah, it took a yeah. certain level of nerddom at least in my circles to, to really, to, to, to get, you know, deeper and to really enjoy the computer for more than just a gaming system. And I think that's an important point is a lot of times people treated these computers like they treat an Xbox or a PlayStation. Now it's just a game console that happens to have a keyboard because yes. that's, that's your interface. It's funny. One of the things I did in high school when I was in Ontario is I would actually um, pay for my lunch by going to a, a there's a, a submarine shop right across the street from my high school and <laughs> the guy there was a big gamer and he, i forget how it came up but he he figured out i was i was the dealer of as far as the atari floppy game goes and i used to trade a couple of floppies a week for basically free pizza subs <laughs> and a coke uh, almost every day and as you know and sometimes i was i was i was i was a bad friend because I would just give him, give him floppies and I'd fill up the floppy and, you know, one floppy, one pizza sub kind of thing. And, and then like, you know, weeks later, I'm like, I got no new games. So I'll just sort of rearrange the games I've already given him and had an, a few more new ones and, <laughs> and go that way. But, uh, that's, uh, that's an awesome story. Wow. So were the subs any good though? Was it they were really good. They were <laughs> okay. really good. Yeah. He, he definitely did, did, did good, but good in that department for sure. There's, Especially when you're a, a high school student, you don't really care. That's right. That's the the right. bar is pretty low. That's true. And I mean, there's nothing better than that probably either. Like that's, a, that must've been a good arrangement. So how long did that keep going for? 
for quite a while. I think I think he eventually got rid of the Atari computer though, so he moved on to something else. I I wasn't able to supply him anymore, right. so <laughs> I had to start paying for my subs. I know there's a Seinfeld reference in there somewhere with George buying calzones for George Steinbrenner or something. There's I feel <laughs> I feel like some some kind of a connection there somewhere. Now that's yeah. that's an awesome story. So you were distributing, sharing. Um, but boy, what a magical time uh, it was, you know. I mean, I remember like being from a small town, uh, it was there there were two ways to connect with people outside of the small town, I guess, at that time. One was to actually go somewhere else. So to yeah. actually physically visit the big city. And I remember in 1986, uh, this is Expo time, Expo 86. Uh, were you around Vancouver at that time or were you in I, I moved to Vancouver in 87. Okay. okay. I just missed it. Well, the expo part is, 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 is not specifically germane to the story, but I remember coming down here and our family friends that we stayed with, we came down for a week or whatever it was for expo, which was awesome in its own right. But, but these kids, this kid who lived at this house, our friends had a Commodore 64 himself and a pile of software that I hadn't had before. So what did I do? Ran to the store, bought a whole bunch of blank floppies and spent <laughs> spent days and days copying and i i came back to to my hometown with with just a bonanza of, of mm-hmm. stuff it was just yeah. it, it was it was just mind blowing like it was and and the level up that that the software these games had the animation the 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 sound uh, it was just uh, it was almost like a different generation that i hadn't seen before i remember at that time it was really significant so so that was so much fun. Uh, it was, it was, and I'd come back to my hometown and we'd get together and, and it was just, it was just a great time to be a, a kid. It was just the most fun I could ever imagine having, I guess, at that time. It was good. For me in the early days, the the one way that I would get a, get a lot of new content, if you will, or at least exposure to the, the fact that they existed, because yes. again, yes. before the internet yes. was computer magazines mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. There was literally a mag or probably half a dozen magazines for every platform out there. And each of them would come with a floppy disk of demos, shareware, software, and things like that. And back then, a big thing for uh, a lot of people to, to create was demo software mm-hmm. in the demo scene. So showing off what your computer can do. Yes. Not so much a demo of a game per se, but maybe, you know, here's a technological improvement or a a tech demo, if you will, of what the Atari or the Commodore can do. And I remember being just dazzled by those. And I started collecting those things for the longest time. Yes. And those demos that you're referring to really pushed the the capabilities of these machines. Like it's almost like these programmers are probably amongst the most skilled programmers uh, uh, anywhere. And Mm -hmm. they absolutely exploit every little bit of capability graphics and sound that these computers have it's really the best way to show off that those machines is to look at those demos like totally Mm -hmm. yeah because the demos i mean they weren't they were rarely a full game or anything like that Mm -hmm. so and you knew or you just assumed at the at, at the time then there wouldn't be enough memory for them to pull off a full game at that quality Right. right. There's a finite amount of storage and, and, you know, graphic RAM and everything like that. So they, they couldn't do a whole game, but they could do like a great 30 second demo or yes. something that was just looping that you couldn't interact with. But I just remember just being like, okay, this is the future. This is where this stuff is going. And every time I would see a new demo, it would one up the last one I saw. And I guess the Holy grail was always to try to look like, you know, a movie or play music back properly or, or play familiar music and, mm-hmm. and having photorealistic yes. imagery. Cause this, again, this is all before like JPEGs and GIFs and right. those types of things. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was definitely, you know, a really interesting time because of the, the limitations on how we could even be exposed to other stuff. I remember going to like in the big cities, going to like a big, store that had a huge magazine section and having all of these magazines for computer systems i didn't even know existed mm-hmm. the whole all the uk computers yes. like this you know the the sinclair and the right. um the amstrads and all those things like 
I had no idea these things even existed because they were never for sale in North America. That's right. Um, at least not until much later. And seeing some of the stuff that you can do on those computers at the time, you know, in a, it was like a parallel universe almost. You know, you're, you're so right. We didn't know about those machines back, back then. Um, but once in a while, as you say, well, in my small town, there once in a while, some of those UK-based magazines would show up in the newsstands as well, in addition mm-hmm. to the, the mainstream North American yeah. magazines that, that I'll talk about in a second as well. But, and I remember those magazines seemed different. They opened up a world that, as you say, it was a parallel world that, that, that was just different um, mm-hmm. than, than what we were exposed to in North America. And I remember, I still, in fact, I still have in the corner of the room I'm in right now, I still have a number of uh, my original magazines from, from back in the day. I, I have almost all of my original Commodore magazines uh, from that era. And it, it was um, going to the newsstand to, to see what was there. If there's something new, I mean, boy, it was just a gold mine of, of if you'd get a new magazine, it was just, you just couldn't wait to dive into it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just so funny now, like, you'll you just go to your favorite website and you see what games are coming or, yes. or you know multiple websites will be talking about it or there'll be youtube demos and you know nintendo directs or uh, e3s or whatever like that but back then we had nothing yes yeah. the magazine and maybe a friend that was traveling would be your only way to find right. out about anything new that's right that's you're, you're totally right and i remember well i should also modify some of the things you know, we're talking about software and acquiring software. And it's funny, I think I remember more about the games that I went to the store and bought off the shelf, almost better than I remember any of the other games that were acquired through other means. Because I think when you buy something, especially when you're that age, I mean, money was not, wasn't, you know, abundant, I guess. We, we, we all had uh, our allowances and whatnot. But I remember seeing summer games uh an ad for epics summer games in one yeah. of the computer yeah. magazines right before around the 84 olympics yeah and and that game seeing that game seeing that ad in the magazine it was it it looked uh, absolutely like mind-blowing and i remember making a trip to edmonton to the west edmonton mall uh, from our small town up there in bc in the summertime and my mom convincing my mom to buy me summer games. And I <laughs> can still remember the smell of the box, like opening yeah. it. it. I remember everything about the experience and that game lived up to its, its, its expectations. I got to say it, it definitely, that was one case where the magazine ad was not misleading. It was bang on. Did, did, yeah. did, did you do, uh, did you ever fire that one up? Oh yeah. Yeah. The thing is, I don't think it was available for the Atari at the same time. I think it was an exclusive for Commodore for a while, if I recall. Um, but I certainly saw it on my friend's computers and, uh, and were in store because around that time was, you know, that the, the original computer store that I went to that had like the downstairs, they actually converted into a hundred percent Commodore store. At oh, one wow. Point. Oh, wow. So I would still go there just to sort of see what's going on. But, um, I remember being envious of of a lot of those types of things because again, I think it had samples and it just did stuff that my computer couldn't do or at least hadn't done yet. Yes, yes. Uh, so let's uh, let's put ourselves back into that you know eight bit era and what was the first time that you discovered? telecommunications, like a modem or that you, the notion of networked computers sort of came into your stream of consciousness. Well, I, I, right around the time when um, these computers came out, at at least the 400 and 800, they had, you know, those, um, uh, the duplex modem, you'd take a, take your phone off the hook and you'd Clip it into the, like the rubber cups. That's right. And and do it that way. That just seemed like I'm not important enough to have that because you know that's for business people, right? And <laughs> people doing serious spreadsheets, you know that yes. kind of thing. And I was you know young at the time, but I I do recall and I actually still have it. Getting a 300 baud Atari modem that plugged into the peripheral port on my Atari computer, and. And then sort of discovering BBSs as being a thing. And I, 
I don't want to tell my whole story because we'll save that for another episode, but that was a very important um, gateway uh, into a connected computer system and uh, being 10 years old and running a BBS Mm -hmm. spoiler um, that was a big deal uh, for me. And it really changed, you know, a lot of things for me because it opened up a world of getting access to other people and software and, you know, finding like-minded friends, that kind of stuff, everything that makes the internet good yes. um, now, but back then, and it was, it was incredibly complex and and challenging to do incredibly slow. And mm-hmm. especially given the limit, given the limitations of the computers we were using at the time, um, it boggles my mind, like what our smartphones can do now in comparison. Um, but for me, that was just a really special time. My grandfather also gave me a Model 100 TRS-80 mm-hmm. computer, which, if you recall, is the very small laptopish kind of computer screen that actually had uh, it, 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 it had a modem option as well. But again, I had no one to call with it. <laughs> so, um, and you know, there was no list in my small town of who I could call with it. So, um, you know, it, it just feels like almost like it was like. The only way to get online was to, you know, you hear rumors or whispers of you know, call this number. And like, mm-hmm. and I was horrified at the thought of just call, calling a random number. Cause back then you couldn't just make a long distance call and not think about it. It cost money to make a long distance call. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so we'll definitely talk more about BBSs uh, at some point because it's such an exciting topic, but I, I can think back to, you know, specific points in, in, in my, I guess, lifetime where I've sat back and said, wow, this is something that is totally going to change or could totally change my life, I guess, in some way. Or this is like just something that's so mind-blowing that um, now that I have this knowledge, like life is never going to be the same. <laughs> or And discovering the BBS or even just discovering the notion of telecommunications and connecting systems. And like you say, connecting to different computers, which opens up whole new worlds. I remember where I was sitting when I was reading the compute magazine Mm -hmm. that uh, talked about BBSs and introduced that concept. And I still have that exact magazine here with me. Wow. But But I just can remember thinking, I have to do this. This is something I absolutely have to do. I, I can't not start a BBS like this is otherwise, you know, you yeah. know, life can't go on. <laughs> um, I'm going to get rid of my computer and do something else. No, it was really something that had to happen, but it meant, as you say, getting a modem, getting a phone line, you know, all those types of things. And when you're 12, 13 years old, um, <laughs> those things aren't as easy to do as you, you might think. But. Well, you, you, not even getting a phone line because when I first started it, that wasn't even an option really. Mm. I had to share my phone line with my family. And I don't know how many times I would be on a call and my sister would pick up the phone to call her <laughs> friend and and ruin it and and how mad I would get about it. That's right. Um, so we're going we're gonna, to um, park the yeah, EBS for an episode, but, um, the, the one thing that I do remember very strongly about these early computers that I got was that you couldn't really take them with you. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, you got them, you set them up and it, it's like a desktop computer now, like it sort of lives somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think occasionally I would take it with me if I was going on a long trip somewhere, cause you could just plug it into your TV, yes. but, and, and they weren't that big, but I remember being like when I was young, we would go on a lot of road trips, go visit family and stuff like that a lot, like on the weekends and stuff like that. And I would, I would be jonesing for my computer. So what I would do is I would literally take the manual for the computer with me and maybe any game manuals that I had or any software manuals. And I would just study them like Bible study almost like it was something like I had to do. And I remember being somewhere, I think I was with, you know, my extended family, my uncles and cousins and stuff like that. And we were at the lake or something in Ontario. And I was sitting there like, you know, laying on the beach, reading the manual for my Atari computer. And my uncle, I remember him saying something along the lines of, what are you doing? Like get in the water and do something. I'm like, no, this is important. And, you know, now they're the ones that call me for tech support. So (laughs) in your face, right? (laughs) (laughs) Once a nerd, always a nerd. Uh, Exactly. Uh, you just couldn't, yeah. uh, but you know what, uh, 
it was, uh, I, I have similar stories in, in the sense that, you know, studying basic code out of a book when I couldn't be near my computer and looking at um, different routines and, and, and thinking, wow, I can't wait till I get back to my computer. I can try some of these techniques, techniques out, but uh, no, that's uh, that's great. Uh, that's a great story for sure. So we're, we're getting towards the end of this episode because we really wanted to sort of keep this into our origin stories and how we got into this. Because then in future episodes, we're going to get into much more specific things and aspects of our affinity for the 8-bit computer systems and games and software and everything to do with it. Um, and also things like emulators and modern takes on some of this old stuff. Um, but um, one of the things that you and I have talked about is having a closing thought of basically something specific about a game that really had an impact or something that we would use to test stuff. And so I think we're going to just start with the one game that had the most impact. And I think you touched on it a little earlier about the fact that games that we paid money for versus the ones that we acquired air quotes um because because back then and even to this day i think a lot of people acquire games like their pokemon cards Mm -hmm. you want you got to collect them all try them see if they're if they're worth your time and, and effort and stuff like that um but back then for me i the caverns of kafka was one of the first games i ever bought with my own money. And that was something that I, I thought was really magical because it's truly a game game. But the one that I was most excited about, and I and I, I mentioned it earlier, was the text adventure for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Because at one point in time, I'd stumbled across, I think on PBS, the British uh, TV series that got me super interested into the the whole Douglas Adams world. I bought the books devour those and then the fact that they made a game about that mm-hmm. where you type and you it, it's not a traditional text adventure in the sense that you know go over there and look in the drawer like it was quirky and weird and very funny um and that was one of the first games i ever finished all the way through and got to the end mm-hmm. wow and 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 for me that was very important uh in the sense because like you and i have said neither was a real like diehard gamers right like um i since then i've finished lots of games uh specifically i I probably spend most of my time finishing zelda games because i enjoy that world but um but back then finishing game was was a badge of honor and a lot of people had those badges i did not Mm -hmm. because i would you know either have access to you know almost an unlimited supply of games back in the day or I just didn't care enough to play that much on one thing because I wanted to try other games or other software. Um, but Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was the one. I may have cheated in a little bit and bought, I think I bought the guidebook that sort of helped you get through things because back then they would have these you know, uh, books you could buy that would guide you through tough games. Or, you know, the Nintendo magazines always had the maps for mm-hmm. like Mario uh, games and stuff like that. So you could actually know what to expect. But um, with a text adventure, it's, it's very different uh, in how you navigate it. Um, but it was just one of those joyous experiences that I often think about was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, uh, the text adventure version of it. So it didn't even really matter what kind of computer you were playing on. And I've since, I've played it on phones with emulators since then. Well, the, that genre, that whole genre of text adventure games is still very popular to this day. And I know there are different engines and and different uh, platforms for developing uh, text adventures on today. It's a genre that I got into a little bit with, with the Commodore 64 back in the day. And I remember getting really engrossed in, 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 in these games and, you know, really get to use the theater of the mind and your imagination and... Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's probably, and it kind of reminds me of the, the choose your own adventure books. I don't know if you remember those from, the I, I sure do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so those are, that's, that's a great genre. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a game that, uh, is a near and dear to my heart, I guess. And, you know, why is it near and dear to my heart? Uh, there are a number of different reasons, but the game that, uh, I, I always go to, 
uh, when I'm firing up my, my original hardware Commodore 64 or an emulator, whatever happens to be, would be Load Runner. Load Runner. Did you ever touch that one back in the day? I sure did. Because the big thing that I thought was really cool about Load Runner is you could actually design your own levels. That's exactly right. And that's what really yeah. made it special uh, is that yeah. having that built-in level designer. And the, the other uh, thing about that game is it was one of the early third-party cartridge games for the Commodore 64, which there weren't a lot of cartridge-based games for the Commodore 64. I shouldn't I shouldn't say there weren't, there were, there were a good number, but the vast majority of games for the 64 were distributed on floppy disk or tape. But yeah. I remember a friend of mine had that cartridge. He had load runner. And this is back, I think probably in my tape drive days still before I had a, a disc drive and I borrowed the, the cartridge from him. And I can still remember not wanting to give it back because this game <laughs> was so, it was so smooth. The Commodore 64 version of load runner is is very smooth, has very smooth animation, very, uh, I, I would say it, it's very responsive. It's it's just, uh, it, it's almost a little bit ahead of its time uh, in terms of uh, the, the gameplay mechanics. It was pretty unique back in, in that day. And uh, and also having that level editor was, was really made it special. And one of the things I like doing these days is in fact I'm 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 still discovering the other 8-bit ports of Loadrunner mm -hmm. on different systems even today. Like I don't think I've ever played it on the Atari 8 bits, but that's I, I should I should do that. But there's a and I don't know if you knew this, but there's a an NES Nintendo uh, in, entertainment system version of Loadrunner. I don't know if you've ever seen that one before. I but, have. Uh, yeah. And it's the difference between that one and and the 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 eight bit computer version is that there's a side scrolling uh, mechanism. The screen scrolls from side to side. You don't see the entire field of play on the screen at once, which adds a certain element of. But really fun, and uh, it's it's really a, a go to game. And for for those out there who haven't ever tried Load Runner or haven't tried it in a while, uh, it's one that you definitely want to go and check out. I, I I tried it. I think the first time I ever played it was actually on the Apple. Right, right. And that version is very similar to the Commodore 64 version uh, mm -hmm. as well. It's uh, except you've got the uh, the Apple, I guess, I, 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 I seem to think of that one as being very blue looking, but I could be wrong. I, I seem to remember a bluish, bluish, I guess, was it blue, purpley tones that the Apple, the old Apple games would, would take on? Well, it would is depend that, on the computer because the Apple II Plus version though was an amber screen. So Right. You can, any any flavor of amber as long as it's amber. <laughs> awesome, yeah, awesome. And and there there, just one last note about Load Runners. There were actually arcade versions of Load Runner, which mm -hmm. I had no idea. Yeah, I, I pick. I think they were only in Japan, or at least primarily in Japan, if my rudimentary research is correct. Um, have you? Yeah, well, you probably tried seeing those. You're the arcade guy too, but uh, really. Interesting. It's just so interesting to me, I guess, that, you know, we can go and in this day and age with emulation and all these other things that we'll be talking about in future shows, so many, uh, it's so much fun to go back and, and experience these games on different platforms. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's I, I find it to be really, really fun to compare. So maybe we'll do some of that too down the line. Yeah. The, the, the thing I really like about emulators is that because you, you you forget how many games you actually probably touched back in the day. And so I used to set up a, a system with an emulator and I would have, you know, at least for the Atari, there's, there's a finite amount of games that were made back in the day. And most of them are available now. You can get them on, you know, um, the Internet Archive and other places like that as complete sets. And I would just start at A and I'd work my way through. I'd load every single game just to see was this something I played? Was this something that was like UK only, or is this something that I actually touched back in the day? And it can immediately transport you back to that, that, you know, your, your basement or your bedroom or wherever you were playing it. Uh, the smells, the everything about that time. If you find the right game that you hadn't seen or come across in a long time. You're, you're, you're absolutely spot on it. It's just like listening to a music, uh, a song that takes you back to, it's the same, the same, type of sensation. Well, I actually wanted to talk about that because, you know, this is a form of time in our lives when we started getting into these things. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would, you know, spend their allowance or their their paycheck and they would go to the record store. 
I think you and I went to the computer store. <laughs> That's right. And we would spend our allowance for paychecks yeah. on 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 a, on a new game or a new cartridge or whatever uh, each week. Yeah. That, that's uh, that's definitely true. And and when the computer store finally did open in my small town, I think I would just go and hang out there like you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was... You don't need a babysitter. You just let me go to the computer store. That's right. I mean, I'm sure they hated it because they had a bunch of kids hanging around all the time. Exactly. But exactly. I know I would now. <laughs> I was the proprietor of the store. At least they were ner- nerdy kids um, as opposed to sketchy kids. <laughs> so, true. Maybe... They're not doing drugs. They're, they're trying to you know, <laughs> exactly. copy your floppies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's all right. That's good stuff. Well, let's wrap this up and um, hope you enjoyed our first episode of the 8-Bit Files. Uh, if you enjoyed us, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening to this on, but we can also be found online and we're going to be posting uh, more and more stuff uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and probably even YouTube uh, at some point. Uh, right now it's just audio only podcast, but um we're not opposed to switching it up and having video and showing what we're talking about more. So, so you can find us at the eight bit files on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube and our website, the eight bitfiles.com. That's all for now. John and Dave signing off. Talk to you again next time. Bye everybody. <laughs>